So we do today join together with Christians around the world from hundreds of countries and dozens of denominations to proclaim our unity in Christ and to pray for peace. World Communion Sunday was started in 1933 at Shadyside Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It was designated right there in the, between the two world wars and right in the midst of the Depression. There it was, an effort to pray for the unity of the church, for the peace of the world. On this Sunday, then, Anglicans in Mozambique and American Baptists in Minneapolis and Methodists in Mauritania and Presbyterians in Portland will break bread together as a sign that we are one family of faith. Lutherans in China, Presbyterians in North Korea will pour the wine and drink from one cup, proclaiming in muffled whispers behind closed doors those words that frighten the state and speak truth to power. The Lord be with you and also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give our thanks and praise. And this morning, followers of Christ in Pakistan and Fort Myers Beach in South Carolina will emerge into an altered landscape. They set the table today amid destruction. And in Ukraine and Russia and Europe and indeed around the world, we come to the table with fresh nuclear threats that haven't been heard in over 60 years. Daring to declare the mystery of faith, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. The letter that we call 2 Timothy is part of the material in the New Testament referred to as the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. And they are called pastoral because they are primarily concerned with the well-being of the church. And by the time these letters are written, the church has become intergenerational, stretching back through families that are represented in this letter by Timothy, his mother Eunice, his grandmother Lois. And while we don't know a great deal about the context of the letter, we do see that there's a lot of concern that Timothy's generation is becoming ashamed of the gospel and that this shame is somehow associated with Paul's suffering in prison. So Paul says, do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. And then later, but I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust. That was my, happened to be my grandmother's favorite hymn. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to take that which I have given unto him against that day. That faith passed to us our grandmothers and mothers, our grandfathers and fathers, our congregations through the generations. Paul is worried that that fire of faith of Lois and Eunice 
is in danger of dimming and needs to be rekindled, that the faith of the cross is being traded for a faith less embarrassing, a faith that requires no suffering. In the past, I have taught in our confirmation class, the students there, that living as a disciple of Jesus Christ means taking all of the experiences and information that they have learned throughout their life at the church and living it out with God's help as sixth graders in a middle school. What does that look like for a sixth grader in middle school? We wonder aloud together. Maybe the hospitality of Christ means inviting that kid that people call unpopular to sit with you. The peace of Christ may be to refuse to do wrong to someone who has done wrong to you. The love of Christ may mean challenging your friend when he makes a racist joke. Maybe Christ is calling us not to be ruled by materialism and selfishness, to think of others above ourselves. And the more honest of the students in the class will say it right away, Pastor Chris, that's really hard. The even more honest might call it what it is, a form of suffering to live that way, to invite ridicule and shame But of course, that's exactly what Paul says. Don't be ashamed of my suffering. Don't be embarrassed because I'm languishing here in prison. Rekindle the faith that's willing to stand up and risk embarrassment and risk suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, Christians in various times and places have known what it means to suffer for the sake of the faith, for the sake of the gospel. Those believers in Rome, not too far removed from Jesus' death and resurrection, endured torture and death because they refused to reject Christ. So did Christians in Germany who hid Jews in their basements and attics as an expression of their faith. A group from our own congregation recently traveled to Montgomery, Alabama to see the levels of suffering endured by those who were looking to be free and equal citizens of this country, fire hoses and dogs and police batons, not to mention the hanging noose, awaited those who lifted their voices to sing of liberty. The call to suffer then is very real and Christians throughout the generations have have been faced with that call. But it's not suffering just for the sake of suffering. It's not a kind of religious masochism. Rather, it's a call to redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering comes as a consequence of following Christ. It comes as a consequence of living by the light of the gospel in the world. It's suffering for the sake of peace and love and freedom and justice. Whether it takes the form of standing up for the outcast 
in the middle school cafeteria or standing up for the dignity of human beings in Mykolaiv, Ukraine or Birmingham, Alabama. The gospel lived out in the world will mean the risk of suffering. And Paul says it plainly, do not be ashamed of my suffering. It is for the sake of the gospel, the good news of God's love in Christ for all. You recall around this time of year, in fact, I think October 2nd, maybe the 16th anniversary, when five Amish girls were shot and killed in a schoolhouse in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. It was a shocking tragedy. And the way the Amish community responded to that tragedy was also shocking to many people. If you remember, they shared expressions of forgiveness for the killer right away. They reached out to the perpetrator's family. Half of the attendees at the killer's funeral were Amish. And they designated a portion of the money that poured in from around the world to the widow and surviving children of the shooter. You remember that? Maybe you remember also some people objected to what they did, objected to that response. And when they did, those Amish leaders had to say out loud what they had only been saying among themselves, that it was one of the hardest things they had ever done to forgive, that they had suffered and that forgiving was a form of suffering for them and that they would continue to suffer. It's a day-to-day struggle, they said, and it's only possible because of the community, they said, the community. Vengeance destroys community and only love and forgiveness can repair what is broken. Their way, they said, in a roundabout way, is the way of Jesus Christ. And they did not deny that it was hard, that it was a way that risked suffering. But here's the thing, 16 years later, that still stands out to me, uh, everything that happened during that time, was the way they held their heads up high even when they were being ridiculed and shamed by some for those expressions of love and forgiveness, for their extraordinary oddness, they were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. All of it comes together for us, for all Christians, whether Amish or Presbyterian, All of it comes together at this table of grace. I remember growing up, I spent big portions of my summer at my grandparents' home out in the country. It was kind of like the city mouse, country mouse kind of thing. Those of you of a certain age, I was the city mouse visiting the country. And one of the best things that happened out there in the country was getting word that my great-grandma Cosby had made a batch of tea cakes. She lived a quarter mile up the road from my grandparents, and we would get the dispatch that the tea cakes were prepared, and the whole mess of us, and there were a lot of us, we would head up the road. 
And the tea, tea cakes were, as far as I could tell, a slightly less sweet version of a sugar cookie. But calling them tea cakes was really exotic. Like a li that, li that little Alabama farmhouse was really an English manor, you know. We went into the house, we could smell them right away. And Grandma Cosby would set them out there on the big wooden farm table and there was a basket covered with a, with a towel and there was a pitcher of ice cold Alabama sweet tea, which as you know, is three parts sugar and one part tea. And we would eat and eat and drink and drink until we could eat and drink no more. Now you know what happens when you spend a lot of time with extended family. There's conflict that can and does emerge. There were a lot of us kids in those days and we had a fight or two along the way. And one particularly nasty summer I received eight stitches. I still have the scar right on my forehead from a bucket thrown across a creek as we were swimming. And the one who threw it said she was aiming for my uncle but accidentally hit me. And I wasn't buying it and I wasn't speaking to her. She ruined my summer. It seemed something like that was always happening. But you know, those conflicts, every one of them melted away whenever we went to grandma's table and had those tea cakes and that sweet tea. I don't know if it was her presence there, four generations removed from all of us, that reminded us of who we were, that we were one family, but the conflicts were forgotten in the midst of the feasting, and we would leave and head back out to play and love and fight and forgive and if need be even suffer for the sake of our family. Sometimes when I'm being really naive I like to think if I could just escort this whole fractured fighting world to my grandma's table to feast on tea cakes together that would take care of all of it. We would walk away refreshed, renewed, ready to live for Christ. And I suppose in a way I can do that, or I should say Christ can and does. Come and dine, he says, at this table where we say, this is my body, this is my blood. Rekindle the faith that is within you. Guard the good treasure entrusted to you by your parents and your grandparents and these faithful congregations like this one. Don't be ashamed if it makes you look a little odd, makes you suffer even. Lift up your hearts. Eat and drink. Forgive and love. All for the sake of the gospel of peace, which is the hope of the world. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let our prayer be as it ever has been. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Amen. Amen.